right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning, and I hope you have your Bible with you, and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're at. Last week, we moved into a new section of 2 Corinthians that Paul Barnett calls a long digression about the apostolic ministry of the new covenant. Um, in other words, it's a long defense, a long explanation of Paul's ministry, Paul's authority, that lasts from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way into chapter 7, verse 4. So this is not a short explanation. A short defense is a long defense. And he's going to make this defense in light of the attacks from his opponents in Corinth who are really doing everything they can to discredit him and his message in the eyes of the Corinthian church. They were trying to turn the people's affection, the people's allegiance away from Paul and toward themselves. They wanted these people to follow them and not the Apostle Paul. And at the onset of this section, we saw Paul employ two illustrations to reorient his audience's thinking, particularly about his suffering, suffering that seems to be their favorite place to launch the attacks. They will say, look at his life. Does that look like the life of a faithful servant of the Lord? Does that look like the life of someone who is blessed by God? He's going to talk about his suffering, and he painted a picture of Roman, the Roman parade of triumph in which the Lord is the conqueror, right? To use his illustration, the Lord is the conquering general who's in the spotlight and he is leading us in the parade as an instrument through which to spread the knowledge of him to every place. That's what we see, right? Remember that no matter where you fall on the debate about where Paul places himself in that parade, where he places us in that parade, the bottom line is it's the Lord's parade He's the one who's getting the attention, and he is using us to spread the knowledge of him to every place, to spread his fame to every place. Paul used that image of the parade of triumph. He also used another image from the temple, particularly the aroma of a burnt sacrifice. And he paralleled his life and our life by implication. He paralleled our lives with the sacrifice offered completely to the Lord. This smoke, this aroma that rises up to the Lord and he smells Christ through our lives offered to him. Remember last week I told you that the Lord is the first audience of this sacrifice. But he's not the only audience of the sacrifice. Others smell Christ in the offering as well. All of our neighbors, in fact, smell Christ in the offering. And some of them, we saw in the text last week, delight in the aroma. It is life unto life for them. And others are disgusted by the aroma it is death unto death for them. Those are the two responses, right? Because those are the two types of people in the world. There are only two, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And so for application last week, I asked you, which are you? Are you among those who are perishing or among those who are being saved? Maybe to ask it a different way, how does Christ smell to you? Does he smell like life unto life or death unto death? That's a question that we need to consider even now because there are only two types of people in the world, only two types of people in this room. Which are you? And as we consider that, we must always remember that God is in the business of transforming our sense of smell, right? He, he does this. Every person in the room, every person on the planet that now loves Christ, every person on the planet that smells life unto life, every person on the planet that trusts Christ once did not once rejected him, once was disgusted by him, but God changed them. He changed us, and he can change you as well. And so we pray even now that he'll be doing that in your heart and in your life, changing the way you perceive Christ, that you'll be brought to repentance, 
that you would change your mind about Jesus and stop rejecting him and start trusting him and find life in him. Second question for application last week was, what do your friends smell when you're around? Do they get a whiff of Christ through your life by the way you live, your lifestyle, and by the way you speak, your, your verbal witness unto Christ? Do you smell like Jesus to your neighbors? And all of this, as we consider it, is a matter of life and death. In fact, it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And that idea, the weight of all of this, the weight of our lives given to the Lord in sacrifice, the weight of the aroma that smells to some like life and some like death, all of this being a matter of eternal life and eternal death leads to our text today. Leads to this question of who's adequate for this? Who's up for a task like this? And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to raise today and answer quickly in the text. So look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 14 through 17, even though we're going to zoom in on the end of verse 16 and 17 today. We covered 14 to 16 last week. This is God's word. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, as we think about our lives as sacrifices offered unto you, as we think about being led in the parade of triumph of Christ, as we think about being the aroma of Christ to our neighbors, some of whom embrace it as life and others reject it as death, we are overwhelmed. We feel inadequate and insufficient. And on our own, we, we truly are. So Lord, remind us today that we are not on our own. We are not left to our own devices to smell good to the people around us. You are with us. You have given us your word. And so we ask that you would use us as we declare your word in sincerity. And we ask that you would guard us against the temptation to compromise. In order to avoid suffering, whether that suffering is embarrassment or even martyrdom, keep us faithful and use us to spread the knowledge of Christ to all places as you accomplish your mission of redeeming a people for yourself from all nations, tribes, and languages through the blood of of the Lamb, and we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. So after all that we covered last week, Paul responds with this question of, and who is adequate for these things? In verse 16, who is adequate for these things? And as I alluded to in my prayer just now, this seems to be Paul's, Paul's reaction to all the picture he has just painted, especially if you understand Paul to mean that he is the captive the enemy captive who has been conquered and is being led to his death, right, as a means of spreading the aroma of the knowledge of Christ, captivated by Christ, led off to death, who's adequate for that? Who's sufficient for work like that? Who is equal to that task? But even if you don't place Paul at that point in the parade, you place him somewhere else in the parade, you still feel the weight of the burnt offering imagery, right? An offering that is completely consumed, not part of it that's set aside to be eaten, not part of it that's set aside for some other purpose, but all of it that is 
given to the Lord and totally consumed unto him. The aroma of Christ to God, the aroma of Christ to people around you, some of whom find life in that aroma and some of whom find death. Who is adequate for this, right? John Piper paints an interesting picture. He says, who can bear the weight of knowing that the aroma of your Christ-exalting life will lead some to eternal life and others to eternal death? It's as serious as if you walk down Nicolette Mall, which is a super busy area in downtown Minneapolis. It's as serious as if you walk down Nicolette Mall at lunch hour and some would smile and come behind you and be saved and everyone else would drop dead. Who could bear it? The aroma of life unto life and the aroma of death unto death. Who can bear that? Well, instinctively, we want to say no one can bear this, right? No one is adequate for this. No one is up for this task. Instinctively, I want to say, certainly not me. Certainly, I'm not up for this. To be, to be an instrument that the Lord uses to bring about life or to bring about death, certainly, instinctively, I would say not me. And those instincts are good, right? They're deeply rooted. In fact, as we read the Bible, I could give you numerous examples of people who are called by God to do great work, and their immediate first reaction is, whoa, whoa, you've got the wrong guy, right? We see that all over the place. Look in Judges chapter 6 when the Lord comes to Gideon. Gideon, who is hiding in a wine vat, like way down in a pit where they press wine, doing work that you should do up on a mountaintop. Right? That's, that's the picture. you got to read closely, but that's what's going on there. And when the Lord comes to him in the voice of an angel, the angel says, Greetings, mighty man of valor. And you got to think this guy who's hiding for fear of his enemies, doing work that should be done on a mountaintop, would say, you got the wrong guy. Right? In fact, as you read through that story in Judges chapter 6, he does that a few different times. Gideon tries to kind of back away and say, you, you, you must have the wrong person. You need to pick someone else. But maybe the clearest example is Moses, and you know this, right? Maybe you were already anticipating, oh, he's going to talk about Moses here in Exodus chapter 3. Look at it. God says to Moses, therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Right? God says, I clearly have a good work for you to do, an important work for you to do. And Moses' initial reaction is, you got the wrong one. Who am I that, that I should do this kind of work? In fact, he does it again in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it says, Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Like Moses, this is not just a one-off moment with Moses. This is something, as the Lord is clear about the work he's calling him to, he continues to say, no, 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 you've got the wrong one, and he's looking for a way out, right? We know that. So this instinct of who's adequate for this, not me, that comes pretty naturally. Like we, we see this all over the Bible. We see this all over the room, right? It, but what I want you to see is that as God is clear about his calling for Moses, as Moses balks at that, and expresses his inadequacy, the Lord is going to respond. Look at Exodus chapter 3. What we just read is followed by verse 12 that says, And he, that is God, said, Certainly I will be with you. 
And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. That's really interesting, right? God says, Moses, go do this work. Moses says, no, Lord, you've got the wrong one. I'm not adequate for this. And God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will make you adequate. In fact, he really makes that clear in chapter 4. When Moses says, but I'm not eloquent, right? His excuse when God calls him is, I'm not eloquent. I don't have a good mouth. I don't, I don't speak well, right? Look what God says in response to that. This is the, the best. In verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Some of your translations personalize it and say that God said to Moses, who made your mouth? Moses says, I don't have a good mouth. I'm not adequate. And God says, who made your mouth? Did not I make your mouth? And if that wasn't clear, he goes on in verse 12 and says, now then go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. I want you to notice here that Moses is not adequate, right? And God does not, does not uh, overcome his sense of inadequacy in saying, oh, no, no, Moses, you're, you're better than you think you are. Oh, no, no, Moses, you're, you're being too hard on yourself. Oh, no, no, Moses, you're actually a great speaker. That's not the way the Lord overcomes Moses' sense of inadequacy. What does he say? He seems to say, yeah, you're not a great speaker. Yeah, you're not very strong, but I will be with you, and I will use you. I made your mouth the way I made it. The, the adequacy, the sense of being up for the task with Moses did not come from Moses. It comes from God. God made Moses adequate. God made Moses adequate by his power and his presence in Moses' life, and that's the key. Right, And it's the exact same thing for Paul in 2 Corinthians. Though he doesn't say it in the text we're looking at today, skip ahead a little bit to chapter 3. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, start reading in verse 4. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Right? We are not, who's adequate for this? Not us. Right? At least not in ourselves. Read on. He says, to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, uh, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that text more in, in a few weeks, but for now, I want you to see that it's the same. In the same way that God made Moses adequate by his power and presence in Moses' life, God makes Paul adequate by his power and presence in Paul's life. So what is Paul's answer to the question? What is Paul's answer to the question that he raises? Who is adequate for these things? I am, he says. I am adequate for these things by God's power, by God's presence, and by God's grace in my life. So what must our answer to that question be? In the same situation, the Lord calls us clearly to a work. We feel a sense of inadequacy. We get the question, who's adequate for these things? What should our answer be? I am, I am, but not by my own strength, not by my own power, but by God's power, God's presence, God's grace in my lives, in my life. Gary Miller says it like this, our sufficiency, our adequacy, our qualification for the task has nothing to do with us. Thank God, <laughs> right? I love that part. 
It has nothing to do with us. Thank God. But it flows from the fact that God himself speaks through his words. That's where the power comes from. That's where the adequacy comes from. That's why you're up for the task. Because it's not your task, ultimately. It's not your word, ultimately. It's God's work and God's word. And he will provide all that is necessary to accomplish his work. So in the next verse, Paul's going to give us some foundation for the adequacy that comes from God by asserting his reliance upon the Lord in the preaching of his word. He's also going to uh, contrast that approach, that approach of dependence upon the Lord with the approach of his opposition who do not preach the word and are not sincere in their ministries. Look at verse 17. He says, for we are not like many peddling the word of God. Right off the bat here, Paul is going to distinguish himself from his opponents by accusing them, the many, of, quote, peddling the word of God. CSB translates that, market the word of God for profit. We're not like that. We don't market the word of God for profit. We are not peddling the word of God. And the imagery here comes from the marketplace, particularly folks that sold wine in the first century. Paul Barnett, again, is helpful. He says the verb used of these peddlers was used of wine hawkers who watered down the pure vintage. Right, mark that down. They watered down the pure vintage to make fraudulent profits. Water it down to make a buck. The implication is that these persons, namely the false apostles, Paul's opponents, were receiving perhaps excessive payment from the Corinthians in return for a diluted, weakened message. That's what was going on. They were peddling the word of God, giving the people a watered-down message so that they could make a buck. This is probably a specific reference to Paul's practice of not taking money in, in, in payment for preaching the word, right? His opponents would jump on that and say, he must not have a message that's worth much if he's not charging you anything for it. In fact, we know that he doesn't charge the Corinthians for the work that he's doing because he says so in this letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Paul's opponents probably leveraged this preaching without charge to call into question the worth of Paul's message. Maybe their punchline as they talk about this with the Corinthians was, well, you, you get what you pay for. All the while, they, the false apostles, take a fortune from the Corinthians in exchange for a watered-down, powerless, counterfeit message. A message that is likely more appealing to their flesh than the true gospel which Paul is preaching, but is not a gospel that will save. So, seems like there is this specific reference to Paul's context, but then there is also a general principle here at the beginning of this verse. Are there people today who peddle the word of God? Are there people today who water down the truth in order to get rich? Sure, of course there are. And as I think about that, it makes me angry. It makes me disgusted. I want to shake my fist and wag my finger, but listen, got to be careful not to just do that, right? Not just wag our finger and shake our fist at them. 
we must also recognize that for us, there is a danger and a temptation to do the very same thing. Maybe not to get rich in the preaching of the word, but to water it down to make people happy. To water it down to dilute it in order to not stir up controversy. In order to avoid embarrassment. There is a constant temptation for us to peddle the word of God today. We need to consider in what ways are we tempted to peddle the word of God. Listen, if we're going to be instruments, instruments that God uses to spread the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places, we can't be like the many who peddle the word of God. We have to follow the path of the Apostle Paul and a path that he outlines in the rest of the phrases that follow. He says, we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Each one of those phrases is super significant. But we need to start with we speak, right? We need to start by considering what he means by we speak. We got to deal with that part because that's the verb. That's the action. All the other phrases in, in this verse modify that, we speak. It's the main verb going on here. Paul says, we speak. And that's part of why I spent time last week talking to you about how the aroma of Christ from your life that goes up to God and smells good to him and goes out to your neighbors smelling good to some and disgusting others, the aroma of Christ cannot be merely your lifestyle. It cannot be merely your behavior. It must also include your verbal witness unto Christ. That's what he's talking about here. We speak. And when Paul speaks, he speaks the word of God. When Paul speaks, he speaks the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's declared that to this group of people already. Look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. We looked at that text, more of it, last week. But I want you to see there, he says, what do we speak? We speak Christ. And specifically, we speak Christ crucified. Christ dying on the cross in the place of sinners. When Paul is speaking, that's what he's speaking. The good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't do it with fancy words, slick talk. I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I determined, listen to this, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like one track mind. When I spoke to you, when I was among you, I knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul says, we speak. When we speak, we speak about Christ. When I was among you, I knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the message that Paul was speaking. And that's the message that we must speak. And Paul is constantly inviting other churches to pray for him that he'll continue to do that, that he'll continue to speak Christ to the people around him. Look at Colossians chapter 4, starting at verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. Pray for us that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ 
for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. I want you to notice two things here. And we're going to see the same two things in another text. One is he invites the people to pray that he'll speak. Speak what? The mystery of Christ. Speak it in such a way that it's abundantly clear, right? That's what he's praying. And the consequence of that speaking forth the mystery of Christ includes imprisonment. You notice that? He's like, pray for me. Pray for me. Not that I will get out of jail, but that I will be clear about Christ even if I'm chained up for it. That I won't compromise on that to make anyone happy. That when I'm around people and I'm speaking, I'm speaking Christ. The mystery of Christ so that people can be saved, right? It's the same idea in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 19. He says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Catch it? Pray for me. Pray for me that I'll speak boldly, that I'll speak clearly, that I will testify uh, exclusively about the, the gospel, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Same prayer, same consequence. He's recognizing that this may cost him dearly. What we see in the Apostle Paul is a commitment to speak about Christ even if it costs him, even if it costs him chains, beatings, we know that it will eventually cost him his death. What does he speak? He speaks about Christ. What must we speak? We must speak about Christ, and it may cost us a lot. Notice he goes on and he says, how should we speak? As from sincerity. Look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Ver, uh, yeah, chapter 2. We speak as from sincerity. That word sincerity contrasts with the peddler's who dilute the truth. That idea that we saw just a minute ago. In fact, the word sincerity here at its root means pure, means undiluted, uncorrupted, nothing else mixed in to mess it up. It is clear, it is pure, it is clean speech about the gospel. So when we speak about Christ, we speak about him from sincerity. We're not mixing anything else in. We're not watering it down. We're speaking with purity about Christ. As from sincerity, he also says, as from God. Paul hammers on the fact throughout his writings that his apostleship, his ministry, his authority did not come from men. It was not something that he had sought after from his own selfish ambition. Where did Paul's ministry come from? Where did Paul's message come from? Where did Paul's authority come from? It came from God, right? So that when he speaks, he speaks as one sent. Right, that's the idea of an apostle, a sent one. He speaks as one sent from God. With sincerity, speak Christ. As from God, speak Christ. And in Christ, speak Christ. Paul not only hammers on his authority from God, he also hammers throughout his writings on his union with Christ by faith. The focus of Paul's identity is not in his work. It's not in his skill it's not in his income. Rather, it's in his union with Christ. Paul is constantly recognizing that what matters most is that he is in Christ. And in Christ, Paul knows that he's a new creation. He says, the old is gone. Look, the new has come. In fact, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Look, the new has come. And in Christ, Paul knows that he is secure. In Christ, he knows that he's secure. 
who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Look at this, Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Speaks with sincerity speaks as one sent from God and speaks as one who is in Christ. In Christ as a new creature. In Christ as one who is held securely. Are you in Christ? Maybe that's a good question to ask right now. Paul sees his whole identity as in Christ. Are you united with Christ by faith? Are you in Christ? He goes on though and he says, we also speak in the sight of God. In the sight of God, this is huge. All of this work, in other words, all this ministry, all this speaking, it happens in the sight of God. It happens before the eyes of the righteous judge of the universe. Paul knows that it is God who will evaluate his ministry. God is the one to whom Paul must answer. God is the one who will one day, who would one day say to Paul, well done, good and faithful servant. And that truth freed Paul from living to please men. The fact that he is preaching in the sight of God and not primarily in the sight of men, the fact that he is speaking in the sight of God, doing all of his ministry and work in the sight of God as the righteous judge, freed him from his worry about the opinions of men. He articulates this clearly in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. That, that is really helpful to keep you speaking with sincerity. That is really helpful to keep you speaking as one from God. That is really helpful in keeping you speaking in Christ, to recognize that all of this happens in the sight of God. And did you notice that when he smells us, this is the logic he's using in the very same passage, when he smells us, he smells Christ. And let me tell you, when the Father smells Christ, he is pleased all the time. He is pleased with his beloved son. Now, your neighbors may smell Christ, and some of them may be pleased too. They may say, yes, that is great. Amen, hallelujah, thank you. And others may smell Christ and kill you. Like literally, kill you because of it. They smell it and are disgusted. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter their response, as long as Christ is the one being smelled, God is pleased with that. That'll free you. That'll free you to spread the aroma of Christ. If you know that this is happening in the sight of God as the righteous judge, it'll free you to spread the aroma of Christ and not fear man's response. Oh, we want everybody to smell life, right? But it'll free you from being bound to their opinions. Because listen, when you're bound, when you are bound to their opinion about how it smells, you will compromise the message to make it smell better. They won't be smelling Christ anymore. They'll be smelling something else that you've produced that may be more palatable to them. And they'll say, oh, that smells, that smells better than what Paul's preaching. Nah, that smells better than what the Bible actually says. And God will not be pleased by that. This text is clear. 
In preaching this text, John Piper turned these phrases into questions for us to consider as we seek to be the means by which God spreads the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places. He asks, do you treasure Christ enough so that you will not peddle his word? Do you treasure Christ enough so that you will not peddle his word? You will not water it down, mix it up, and sell it for a profit. Will you speak from sincerity? Will you be real? Will you mean what you say? Will you renounce all pretense and hypocrisy? Will you speak as from God? That is, will you take not only your commission from God, but your words and your authority from God? Will you speak his words and not your own? Will you speak it in his authority and not your own? Will you speak in Christ? That is, will you get your identity and your assurance and your confidence and your hope and your courage from your union with Christ? Will you speak as before God? That is, will you reckon him to be your judge and not man? Will you care more about his assessment of your words and not be deterred by human criticism? Who is adequate for this? I am. And you are. If you are in Christ. It's the answer to the question. Who's adequate for this? No one on their own. Everyone who is in Christ. But not everyone is in Christ. Not everyone in this room is in Christ. So friend, if you are not in Christ today, be warned. You will face eternal condemnation from the Holy God because of your sin. You will perish under his perfect justice. You will get exactly what you deserve for your life of sin. And it will be worse than you could ever imagine. Be warned. You are not in Christ. But be amazed. Be amazed that the holy God that you have infinitely offended by your sin the holy God has made a way for you to be reconciled to himself. A way for you to be forgiven of your sins, made clean and righteous. And he made that way by sending his own son to take your sin and the punishment that you deserve. He made this way by sending his son to die the worst imaginable death on a cross in your place. Be warned and be amazed and be saved. Be saved. This holy God offers you salvation. He offers you deliverance and hope. He offers you eternal life. He offers all of this as a gift, a free gift that you do not deserve, no one deserves, and that you could never earn. He offers it to you. And you receive it from him by believing, by trusting in the perfect work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So repent. If you are not in Christ, repent Turn away from the direction you are headed in your sin and in your rejection of Christ. Turn away and put all of your trust in him and be saved. If you are not in Christ, be warned. Judgment is coming. Be amazed. A way of escape has been provided. And be saved by repenting of your sins and putting all of your trust in Jesus Christ. That's if you're not in Christ. If you are in Christ, be faithful. He has made you adequate. You are up for the task. You, you are adequate and up for the task, not by your skills, not by your personality, not by your training, but by his presence and his grace in your life. You are up for the task. 
And he intends to use you to spread the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places. So if you are in Christ, be faithful and speak with sincerity from God, in Christ, in the sight of God. Speak forth the mystery of the gospel to your neighbors and to the nations. On some level, this is an application for all of us. This is what the Christian life is to be all about for every Christian. Spreading the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places. The knowledge of Christ, the, the, the aroma of Christ that rises up to God and he is pleased and he smells Christ. The aroma of Christ that goes out to your neighbors and some of them receive it as life unto life and some of them as death unto death. That's how he intends to use every believer in Jesus Christ. But on another level, I wonder if today is a good day to ask who's next. I wonder if today's a day to ask who's next to devote themselves to full-time Christian ministry, to pursue training and experience in order to become a pastor or a a church leader of some sort. I wonder if today's a good day, day to ask who's next to surrender to God's leading to become a missionary, to take the light of Christ to the darkest places on the planet. I wonder if today's a good day to ask if you feel like Moses, if you've been hearing the Lord call you clearly and you've been saying, oh, no, you got the wrong one. Oh, no, Lord, you got the wrong one. I'm inadequate. I'm not sufficient. I'm not up for this task. Maybe today you need to hear the Lord in this text say, you're right, but I'll be with you. I made your mouth. I will work with my power and my sufficiency through you. I was talking to a guy this morning and and, and basically said, I think this answer of, I'm I'm not the one, is exactly the kind of person the Lord intends to use. Like, give me, give me one of those guys over a dozen who say, I got this, right? The Lord calls you to some great work and you say, well, it's about time you noticed how great I am, right? That's messed up. You know, that, that guy's not qualified. But the one who says, oh, Lord, I don't know. And he says, I know, I know you, I made you. Who made that mouth? I did, and I will be with you, and I will use you. And you will spread the aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places through you. So maybe today is the day you say, all right, Lord, here we go. I'm yours. I'm yours. I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. I'll serve you in vocational ministry. I'll serve you in global missions. Because you're adequate. And you will make me adequate for the work you're calling me to. Let's stand together and pray. The Lord, help us all to hear your call on our lives. Call to serve you as an instrument to spread the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ to all places. Pray particularly for folks you are calling to vocational ministry, folks you are calling to global missions. I pray that they will hear your promise to them to be with them and to use them, to make them adequate for the work you're calling them to. I pray that you will give them 
humble obedience and submission to follow you wherever you lead. We also pray for men and women and boys and girls who are not in Christ right now. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. I pray that they have heard clearly or will hear, even in this moment, the warning of judgment to come. That they will hear of the amazing work that you have done to reconcile them to yourself through your son. I pray that you will grant them faith to trust in Christ and repentance to turn from sin. That you'll save them, not just for their sake, not just for their eternal good, but for your glory as you bring in another worshiper for yourself. Be honored and have your way. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.